everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast where writers sit around drinking tasty beverages to talk about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. There will be rants and raves and opinions that may not agree, but are lovingly delivered. We will not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your pro fan base today includes Dave Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 189, Interview with P.L. Hayes. Welcome, Paul. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, the truth of it is, uh, Dave and I have known Paul here for, I'm going to be impolite and say 30-ish years. Is that fair? I, I think 30 or maybe a little bit more. I'm sure less because I'm only 35. Uh, okay. Well, yeah, I did know you from a very young age. So. That's right. I'm sure we were toddlers together. So. Uh, no doubt. <laughs> the truth is, uh, Dave and Paul and I originally started in the world of LARPing, which is live action role playing. And... I met him as a golden lion and as a storyteller and game writer first. So you've really been a writer for quite a long time. Which, which came first, writing stories or uh, writing D&D games? Well, I started writing, I guess I would say, when I was in high school. I uh, was enamored of some of the things I read and wanted to duplicate them. I dropped that habit as I got into college and did all of the college things and so forth and so on, but got back into it for LARP and other tabletop writing. Well, we've had in a previous episode where Dave helped me find a guy who was just writing things specifically for gaming, but I think it has a lot of the same ideas, doesn't it? I mean, when you're crafting a story or crafting an adventure, or crafting a LARP for an afternoon, you have to have a series of important events, right? Yeah, I think it definitely follows the theme of story writing that you have, the inciting event, you have the, you know, the build-up, you have the denouement, you have all of the basic elements of it, no matter what kind of story you're trying to tell, because it is a story. They're all kind of stories. So you've written, it looks like three odd jobs mysteries, and I've only read the first one so far, but I really quite liked it. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. Yeah, I've written three of those. Uh, I also have a couple of short stories up on uh, my website at um, Odd Jobs Mysteries. And, uh, you know, you can get a feel for what my writing is like. The ones on the website are different. One is a science fiction and one is a ver fairly farcical piece that uh, uh, was directed at um, Analog's Probability Zero column. <laughs> uh, it did not get accepted, but uh, that's that's what prompted me to write it. That must be the entropy masters. Yes. <laughs> I do like farce. Uh, it, it is farcical. Well, your odd jobs, I liked very much for the same way that I uh, was a big Nero Wolf fan and the others. So anything that is a is a mystery and a gumshoe automatically has a little bit of my affection to start with. But I had to stay with odd jobs. Wasn't wasn't odd job a James Bond villain like Goldfinger or something like that? <laughs> Yeah, I, Odd Job was a, a James Bond villain, though that's not where the name comes from. Um, was, it, was it the Trojan for session hijanking for banks? Because when I started this, I just started giggling wildly at all the different places that you're a triple entendre here. Uh, yeah, it's the the root of that. A friend of mine and I in high school developed many of the ideas and characters for odd jobs, and they were the odd job men. We'd watched a lot of television. We really liked the Mission Impossible series. And how they would, you know, out clever the bad guys, make the bad guys trip over their own feet. We both enjoyed Switch, which was with uh, Robert Wagner and Eddie Albert, in which they did a similar kind of thing. Um, it takes a thief, you know, 
Yeah. Th- those were Robert all Wagner again. Yeah. Th- those were all influences in what we did and the characters spring from that. But in the modern era, I don't want it to be the odd job men. I'd like it to be the odd job agency. And the intention is that they do some odd jobs. They do unusual things. Sounds a lot like um, Leverage. I mean, there are, there are similar series that have come up over the years, um, intervening years. But, um, uh, leverage springs to mind. Yeah, in fact, in one of the blurbs that I put out, I think probably on the website, um, Leverage is one of the shows I compare it to. It's like Leverage, but less zany. It's like Burn Notice, but less spyish. Oh, okay. So, See, for me, I was going to say it's very near a wolf because uh, he reminded me a fair bit of Archie Cunningham. Yes. Yeah, I, I can see that. He he is kind of uh, your Guy Friday, so to speak. He is because he's not the only brain. And I actually do like that it takes a committee. You know, it's not just one heroic because i looking at the Simon R. Green and some of the other things, the Tales from the Night Side, where you have the one guy that does everything, even Dresden. Yeah, I think it takes a committee to get stuff done, and it's not just one gumshoe, but it's a guy, and then it's got a little bit of muscle to keep him from getting hurt, and then how you don't explain everything, and I actually really like that you don't explain everything. Like this is without a spoiler, I can say when when Cameron, your main character, and Cliff go to well, let's just say they're going to go break into somebody's house. They have clearly broken into something before. And Cliff is clearly decent at lockpicking. Yes, that is correct. Uh, you find out more about that in other books, but indeed, uh, they have done that before. And I, I agree with you. It takes a village. I've read a number of thriller books or spy books or things like that, where the main character is a race car driver and a sharpshooter and a martial artist and a millionaire playboy. And uh, and, and, and and I hate that. It makes yeah. me nuts. You know, I just yeah. I, I don't like it. And that's why I wanted to do something where, no, Cameron doesn't know anything. He's fish out of water. Um, but he has friends who will help him out. And they have skills that are useful. Yeah. It's... Go ahead, Dave. Oh, I was going to say one of the things we kind of typically ask on this podcast a lot of times is, um, and I'm sure Jeannie would get around to it, but I mean, do you, so so with these backgrounds and these characters having these skills and uh, uh and so forth the, is this something that you you write all the background out beforehand um so that you know it or does it just kind of evolve as you go along and in other words are you a pantser or a plotter wait wait a second we need to say organic gardener we're no longer using the term pantser i called Ches on this <laughs> oh, I, I need to catch up then Pants, yeah. pantsing has some very real and very elementary school Memories. Well, it, it does, yeah. <laughs> so organic uh, yeah. gardener versus um, planner. Yeah, I I would say as a writer, I'm more of an organic gardener. I have a fair idea of who and what the characters are and what the circumstance is. But I found a great many surprises in writing Into the Fire. Um, I did not know when I started that Cameron had a background in crime, that he had been in trouble with the law. And it was a surprise to me that that was the case. Um, there are other things like that that I I definitely don't know about the characters, and they reveal to me as they go along. But there are things I do know. The characters, uh, particularly Cliff and Cameron and JC, are ones that, um, like I said, my buddy and I did riffs on and told each other stories about, um, you know, forty years ago or fifty years ago. 
And those ideas have stayed in my head and rattled around. And, and he nagged me to write a book. In fact, the seminal notes of the plot are from discussions he and I had. He thought it would be cool to have a, an environmental um, group uh, involved in the, the mystery or the story, because that was, at the time we were talking, that was something that had just happened up at Vale. Right. And, uh, and so there are bits and pieces that I know a lot about the characters, you know, their psychology, kind of who they are. I have pictures in my head of kind of what they look like. Um, but there are many things about them that are different than, uh, than I expected. I, there was something that I noticed right off that all of them basically knew how to talk to police. So that was the first thing when the very first scene and he's going up and he's looking at something and the sheriff and deputy come up to him. He reacted in a way that I would have said, hey, by the way, if you ever have a sheriff come up, oh, you're doing it already. Good job. <laughs> that to me was an immediate clue of this is a man who has run into the law before. Now, could it be protesting? Could it be this? Could it be that? But it, it led me in his very first interaction with police was like, that's not a normal person. Cool. Where's this going? Yeah. Yeah. I, I decided, I, like I say, I was informed by the character that he'd been in trouble with the law. And I've mm -hmm. had conversations with um, others of my friends about, uh, you know, how you deal with the law, wh where we are in the world with some of that, unfortunately. And I thought, yeah, this guy should be savvy about it. He should understand how you interact with the law and understand that you don't give them things because it could be bad for you and for him particularly in this case. Yeah, um, but that that's a fairly common, I mean, not that not necessarily specifically the law thing, but discovering things about your character and, and um, uh, having them tell you things uh, while you're writing is a, a very common, uh, I found a uh, very common um, experience uh, when talking to fiction writers. They're like, yeah, I didn't know this about the character, but then uh, it just came out. Yeah. Yeah. I think, Ultimately, that stuff is always rattling around in your head in some way, and you're looking for a way to make the character seem more real, you know, make them yeah. tangible for the audience. And those things rattle around in your head, and then they come out on the page. Yeah, yeah. It's a, a lot of subconscious stuff. A lot of a lot of the work of character building gets done subconsciously. Yeah. Yeah, certainly true for me. I, I will oftentimes step away from the computer for a while when I'm stuck on something. And when I come back, I know the answer. Or after I've slept, I know the answer. And I don't know why I know it, but I do. Yeah. I also liked that the, to a certain extent at the end, you had a very Philip Marlowe style. You know, your sentence is real shorter, a little straight. You're to the point. You go a little bit deeper with some of your characters. They are slightly more complex in their motivation than I have found in the old uh, 60s and 70s era gumshoes. So I liked that. Well, good. Because yeah, I, it, that guy's... It, aren't just bad guys in this world, are they? No, they are not. Um, kind of the view I have in telling stories, to tell a compelling story, everybody has to have a point of view. I mean, you know, maybe really minor characters who show up on screen for a moment, you don't know all of their point of view. But anybody who is integral to the plot has to have a, a point of view. They have to understand who they are and what they are. And no man thinks he's a villain in his own mind. Right. Um, I uh, took some business courses a while back, and um, one of the uh, 
one of the things we studied was negotiation, and there is a distinction made between your um, your position and your interest, right? So the position is what what the the other negotiating team sees, and your interest is what what you really want. And um, I just kind of expand that a little bit, and and it's kind of a model for for developing characters, right? Because they're going to show you something up front, but they're going to have something that that's their point of view that they want. And that's what they're really trying for. And a lot of, uh, a lot of the really best uh, and cleverest stories that I've read is when that, when that position is revealed and, um, and, and their, uh, their agenda is revealed and, and it's not necessarily the same as what they've been promoting as their interest. Yeah, absolutely. I think that um, I, th I think that's particularly true for villains. I think it's very important for them. They don't put everything on the table because they want you to do something. Right. And so they're going to try to pitch it to you. So you'll do what they want without you knowing what it is. I also like when you hit when they reveal what it is that they're doing, that you're like, oh, I should have seen that. Right. Yeah, oh, I should have known. If the writer's doing their job and there are then there are clues dropped along the way that uh, point to it. Yeah. Right. You also made this a little bit of a love letter to Colorado, I have to say. For for people that have never been to Colorado, you have an opportunity to kind of read this and see what cute mountain towns look like. You know, how, okay, they can be cold, they can be different, the weather's going to change suddenly. But you really described it very, very crystal clear and made it easy for somebody to put themselves in your setting. Well, thank you. I, I definitely worked on that. And it is kind of a love letter to Colorado. I I've lived here my entire life and I love um, the outdoors. I love what Colorado offers. I think it's, it was a great place growing up and it's still a very, very beautiful place. And small mountain towns, I think, are emblematic of kind of a certain slice of Colorado that if you get out into the hills at all, you'll encounter them and they are unique. They are, they have their own character. Um, so I, I'm, I'm glad that came across. It really did. And it it was also emblematic of good advice that my grandmother, who was from the Midwest, had. Of, she says, be a regular somewhere. If you want to know things and you want to be forgiven things, you should be a regular. And so I love that when he's investigating in a little town, he goes to the same place. He eats pie at the same shop. He goes and orders the special. He he gets that. So he's very much a, a product of his environment. And do you take that into the next two books? Are they also set in Colorado? Uh, the the next book is absolutely the third book um, takes place more in New Mexico. Okay. And for there are particular reasons for that in the book, um, but it I try to capture the same kind of thing. In fact, that's the first book on which I did a field trip um, to go down and see the spot that I had picked and was writing about to see what it looked like, see if it was what I thought, and it was not. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I had to alter some things. It's it, it was. Uh, different than the New Mexico I pictured. I, I read a lot of Tony Hillerman and so am informed by his writings about New Mexico, but where he writes about is very much in the Western portions of New Mexico and some of the Southern portions. The Eastern portions of it are a little bit different. The stuff to the East of the Sandias and so forth, the East of Santa Fe is a different environment. It is not the deep desert that you see elsewhere. Oh, you in Shiprock, New Mexico. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Which, if they say it that way, means you've kind of fucked up and you know why you're here. Yeah. 
So what did you use in this? We have a lot of people that we write with on a notebook and some people dictate. I've started hearing the newest thing. I'm not sure how I feel about it because Siri takes terrible dictation, but (laughs) what were your tools? Uh, I mostly use WordPad. Um, I want an editor that offers me nothing other than putting my words on the page and maybe a little bit of formatting, italics, that kind of thing. I don't want it to try to correct my grammar while I'm writing. I don't want it to check my words for me. I don't want it to correct my sentence structure. I don't want it to help me. Word, and, brother, word. <laughs> I, and I, I freaking hate that. Yeah. Well, it, it really interferes with at least my creative process. It, yeah. you know, If I have to go back and look at something because it's dinging at me, it, it breaks the flow. Um, I've so, never heard somebody say it that way. That's kind of cool. Yeah. So, so that's kind of how it works for me. I, and I've used it a lot for other things. You, you've referenced that I've, you know, written other things and that's certainly true. Um, I've written lots of tabletop stuff. I've written, uh, as you said, LARP games, and I've always liked that mechanism for doing it. It, it, it. I've gotten into that habit and it works well for me. And I did it long enough ago that you didn't have great editors. You didn't have great word editors. Um, and so got into the habit of it and liked it. It works for me. When I'm done, I'll copy everything over into Word so that I can format it the way I want and get it into you know a PDF format if I need or pass it off to some other tool like Caliber or that sort of thing to do formatting for the the uh, Kindle or or whatever. But I all of my initial work I, I do in WordPad. So we have a. Raymond Miller is the biggest uh, poster boy for Scrivener ever. <laughs> so he, he has lovely things to say about how it can convert all of that for you. It's not, he's not the only one, though. <laughs> That's true. That's true. He's just my favorite. It's true. Yeah, I have uh, seen Scrivener mentioned, and I've thought about um, trying it out. I've thought about taking a look at it because people have said it does some good stuff. Well, I've got a Scrivener's for Dummies book if you want, but it's for PC, and I've been stuck on a Mac these days. Ah. No, I'm I'm totally with Paul on the just just give me a simple word processor. I mean a text edit, not even not word processor. Give me a text editor to start with, just to put the words down. Um, I'll even um, the the furthest I'll go is um, if I want to kind of format as I go, I'll I'll use some kind of a markdown editor, and then I'll convert that later if I have to. Right. But then there's the uh, the adventure of converting it into all of the different formats that look good on your Kindle cloud reader, on your Kindle, on your phone, on your everything. So there's a lot to it. Did there you, is. In paper? I'm sorry, what? Are they available on paper anywhere? If somebody needs paper, or are they mostly electronic? The books? Mm-hmm. I, I put them both in paperback format because that's what I prefer to read and in uh, ebook format. I put, did all of my publishing up on Amazon because nice. that was what was – the easiest to do at the time I went to do it. it. They had clear instructions. It was clear how you do some things. Um, so I had very little struggle getting them up. Um, and having and originally it was not Amazon. It was I don't I don't remember the name of the company now, but it was somebody else who Amazon subsequently bought and now uses their software to do it. But they provided both the paperback and the ebook, and that seemed like a a win. And did you do your own cover photography and art, or how did you uh, put that all together? Um, I. I surfed around to find um, images that I thought would work for the cover. Um, I wanted something that reflects the idea of the fire that occurs as the seminal event in the book. Um, 
And I wanted something that reflected, you know, the mountains and a mountain town, that kind of thing. And so surfed around on a couple of different, you know, Shutterstock and other places like that to find photos that look good. Um, if they were free and I liked them, I'd use them. If they were for pay, I'd buy them and use them. Um, but I did that, did the layout, um, you know, and in fact, got Canva so that I could do the layout properly for how big the book was going to be and yada, 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 because they give you a template for that. Uh, when you when you set stuff up and uh, so did all of that kind of stuff and I have to say that is not something I like about the writing I, I don't like having to do all of the things that are not writing mm -hmm. I, I can see that that's uh, I'm starting to identify and getting a list of friends that uh, do that thing and say oh sure it's easy and like really how, how, <laughs> how easy would you say that is because I also oh. am not graphically oriented how much would you charge to do something like that? Say, if hypothetically, if, uh... yeah, I've got a sister that's available. So, if anybody wants, uh, Katie does beautiful work. Yeah, and I've determined that probably going forward, if I have the wherewithal at the time, that's definitely a better choice. Get an artist who actually knows what's what, have them understand what the story is about, and give you a couple of picks. You know, see see what looks good. Um, same kind of thing for other bits of it. I and in fact, for editing, I've already done that. I the I have one editor whom I pay um, to do work and she does a great job and she's my first um, editor. She catches lots of little boo-boos that I do. My second editor has been my wife, Margot, and she catches other boo-boos that I do. And then I have a first reader who tells me other boo-boos that I do. So I've had to do large amounts of rewriting from time to time based on what they've caught. Editing is an important part of every process. I think, uh, so far, we've only won into one person that said she liked editing, and we all called her a freak. So, <laughs> I don't mind doing some of my own editing. In fact, kind of my writing process is to, when I start, I'll go back to the last chapter I did, read through it, and do light editing on it, you know, correcting word choice or finding, you know, words that I typed wrong or other things like that, um, and then go on to, to refresh my mind in the story, but also to to improve the book and then go on to write, you know, the next chapter, next section or whatever I do. Um, but I think there's only so much you can do self-editing. You can try to catch your things, but your head is in the story in a way that other people's isn't. And so you're not going to see stuff that they will. Well, yeah. Paul, you were, you were in programming for some time, right? You know that you can't really check your own code. Yeah, you can, but it's always fraught with peril. You not never right. do a good job. Um, a, a good QA person, is worth their weight in gold they in programming. Are. Yeah, and it's the same in, I mean, technical writing. It's not just the story. It's it's everything about the writing. You 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 become completely blind to it after you've been exposed to it for, um, well, for as long as it took you to write it, usually. Yeah, that um, that's certainly true. And uh, Margot, my wife, also has done technical writing. She says the same thing. Getting somebody else to look over your work is invaluable. Um, mm -hmm. You don't recognize things about your own voice. You don't recognize things you've done with word choice because you kind of gloss over them. Yeah. Well, and, and the same in programming. My my favorite story about programming is I, I when I was doing it, um, I can't t count the times that I would like just get stuck on something and I couldn't figure it out. And the moment I stood up, went over to somebody else's desk and asked them to come look at it about halfway back to my desk. I would always think of, Oh, you know, that's what I did. Never mind. Yeah. I have had that experience multiple times. You go to explain it and now you know what the problem is. Yep. 
But it it still gives you that new perspective. There's a lot of folks that use writing groups and there's people that hate writing groups. Chaz has frequently said, no, no, no one must see it. But at the same time, we also know that his wife sees it too. So the whole spousal writing group thing, it's real. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that I think would have been beneficial to me starting out is having a writing group, having somebody to read, you know, the first few chapters and say, yay or nay. That would have been really useful on all of the books. Right. I remember, I just finally remembered that it was Ellen Clagis who said, no, no, she loves the editing process. Mm. And at the same time that we were all exclaimed and pulled away from her in horror in case it was catching, I have to reluctantly say that woman has won every award there is. So maybe there's something to editing and I should take it more seriously. There you go. I, I think it's a skill. It's like many other things you have to do, especially if you're doing self-publishing or or that sort of thing, if you're pursuing that route. It's definitely something that you have to develop some skill in. You have to practice. You have to get better at it because it saves time on the part of other editors that you use. It lets you catch more things because you'll have caught things that they would have also had to catch and wouldn't maybe catch some of the other things. It's It's definitely a skill worth developing. And it is tedious it is hard but i think it's good to do and it also gives you the first chance to call your baby ugly so you don't feel as bad when other people do <laughs> but also, the, you're still getting it out there which can really matter a lot of times get yourself out there and decide maybe somebody will come up to you and say i like it i want to buy this we can make a tv show out of it give me a give me a one sheet there you go are you ready to do that you know actually when i the, kind of my writing process on these novels, I see them very visually. And I think very much I'm influenced by TV shows like, you know, Burn Notice or uh, Leverage or other things like that. And that is the way I see the story breaking. So yeah, I'd absolutely be into that. I would, I think that would be fun. I don't know that I'd be any good at it. I'd love to have some input and to learn from some people who actually know that business. Um, but I'd absolutely be into that. If somebody were interested in these and wanted to make a show, I had, I would enjoy that immensely. Uh, Lynn Harrod and Nate McCoy, we had on to show us what the one sheets look like. They let us see copies of them. So you're welcome to go out and look because it's a whole different, interesting world. And Nick Mamadas was just talking recently about how he was trying to adapt one of his stories into his, into a comic book program, which is the same way of saying it's a script really, isn't it? It's a script yeah. and suddenly adding visuals. So instead of all of that thought that goes on in the character's head, because you have camera and they're figuring things out, how do you show it instead? Right. How how do you do that bit of exposition in a way that is not just exposition? Not just a thought bubble. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Interesting. Well, yeah. Some things are easier visually and some things are harder, right? So you kind of have to know know the vocabulary of the medium you're using i sure. I, I could see uh, the first one into the fire being a play i mean that's one of the hardest things is can you put it on a stage and i could see this because i'm a big fan of murder by death and clue and a lot of the other mystery shows that you have that and with a few subtle changes i think you could do that yeah for a play you'd probably have to shorten some bits you, yeah. You'd have to remove some things. But I agree. I think the format of it, the story you're actually telling, you could do pretty reasonably as a play. I, I, I think you could do it in three acts. I don't think that would be 
beyond the pale. Yeah. And it's for, for anybody out there interested in making short movies, this doesn't have any expensive special effects needed. So it'd be affordable. Yeah, I it it definitely doesn't have, you know, big explosions and lots of gunfights and other things like that. Again, because I don't really like those. I don't like those driving the story. In fact, prior to writing this book, I had read Red Shirts by John Scalzi. Have either of you? I love that. Oh, yeah. I, I loved it. And what I loved about it is his take on um, don't put people in just to kill them. Don't make them red shirts. Yeah. And I, I thought, yeah, I should take that to heart. You should make this a story where you keep that to a minimum. You don't make death be the thing that drives the tension in your plot. You make it something else. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. No, that's what I liked about it, too. So what are you working on now? Are you finishing up In for a Pound, did you say? Or what's your current I, project? I have three out currently. We have Into the Fire. Uh, we have... Um, a dollar short and we have um in for a pound those are all all out on amazon right now the current work is a thousand words is the name of the story um i have been slower on producing it the first three i produced about one a year a little a little slower than that but about at that rate um the fourth one has been slower largely due to environmental factors i guess i'd say we had uh i started it in probably like 2020 and so we had COVID, we had forest fires, we had a presidency that had some issues, we had, you know, just thing after thing after thing. And then I've had other things personally as well since then. So I've done some writing, I'm about 20,000 words in to something that I think is going to be a little bit longer story because there are more elements to it. It's going to run, you know, maybe 80 or 90,000 words as opposed to the other ones, which are 65 or 70,000 words. Um, I haven't given up on it. I still have interest in it, but my energy is limited. I also wanted to throw one more question about the titles. I liked the cleverness that they are each, each pieces of a different saying, and I presumed it was out of the fat into the fire, a day late, a dollar short, in for a penny and for a pound. Is that where you were going with all of them? That is correct. Um, all of them are idioms or the second half of idioms. Yeah. And I... I I was influenced by a bunch of different things in writing these. The The other thing that is notable, since you've only read one of them, the first two books have Cameron as the central character. Um, it is written in a third-person, non-omniscient point of view. Everything you see is from things that Cameron could see, but it's not Cameron speaking. There is a narrator in that sense. Um, and you get to see into his mind that way. Uh, the third book is about the private detective, Kelly Arm or uh, Kelly, uh, Kelly Davis. So she is um, the star of the third and fourth books. And then I intend to continue that. And I got that idea from Kelly Armstrong, um, the women of the other world, where you have changing characters as you go through. And I found that a fascinating way to write. Also, the Kelly books are in first person. I anticipate that others of the books will be, again, in third-person omniscient or will be in first-person, but, you know, a differing kind of point of view on things. So, you know, it stretches me a little bit as a writer to do it, which I like. I, I like the idea of, um, the. I don't know if you've read lots of Glenn Cook, but he has a character named Garrett. All of his are um, in the same vein, you know, bitter gold hearts, cold copper tears. So they're all a metal, they're all a... Uh, a feeling they're all and so forth and so I, I drew on that idea for those but yeah absolutely that's 
I, I, I thought that was fun. I thought it was a great way to do it. I like the idea of different characters, but I've been influenced by lots of people who I've seen do it well. It, and they're good hooks. What what advice would you give to a new writer starting out then? Um, I would. I guess the first bit of advice I'd give is read a lot. Before you ever start writing, read a lot of what you like. Um, it, what you're going to write, read it. Read all kinds of it. Read all the different authors you can read because that'll inform you both what has happened in the industry, what is happening now in the industry, what are the styles and formats, and it'll, it'll inform also how those stories are told because every genre is a little bit different. Fantasy has a different feel to it and a different way of presenting things than mysteries do. Mysteries are different than horror. So read, 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 read. Um, the second thing I'd say is don't worry about whether you think you have a good idea to start with or not. Start playing with the characters. Start thinking about who and what they are. Start thinking about what plots would involve them. You know, really spend some time developing your idea in that way. And then when you go to write, the story almost writes itself. Uh, the words just flow out of your fingers. In fact, sometimes I could not type fast enough. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, we will put links to the fascinating things we discussed during this episode on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. Thanks so much for being with us today, Paul. Absolutely. I thoroughly enjoyed it and it was good catching up with you guys. And please yeah. give a hug to Marco from both of us. I will do so. Hey, you can't speak for me. Okay. Give Marco a hug for me. I will do so. <laughs> You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web magic is cast by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineers and backup web spiders are David Welsh and John Schmidt. Our intro and exit music are performed by Michael Engberg, and our podcast sponsors are Jackal Designs, The Bean Scene, and Arm Street. And hey, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.